When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The name of Zephram Cochran is revered throughout the known galaxy. Planets were named after him. Great universities, cities. Isn't your story a little improbable, Mr. Cochran? No, it's true. I was 87 years old when I came here. You say this companion found you and rejuvenated you? What were you doing in space at the age of 87? I was tired, Captain. I was going to die, and I wanted to die in space, that's all. True, his body was never found. You're looking at it, Mr. Spock. If so... You wear your age very well. Zen from Cochran. We have the Enterprise NCC 1701, Enterprise NCC 1701D. We're going to talk about that and much more in this novel called Star Trek Federation. Hi, I'm Bruce Gibson. You're listening to Positively Trek, and I'm here with my famous co-host, Dan Gunther. Dan, how are you doing on this reading day? I'm doing well. I'm wondering where in the world I'm at all considered famous, but uh, thank you. That's pretty cool. (laughs) You are famous on this show. Anybody who listens to the show knows who you are. I mean, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Within, Within the listeners of this show... Most of them know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So you're famous. You're famous for your book reviews, too. Oh, yeah. My book reviews on that website that I haven't updated in ages. <sighs> I'm so Gee, sorry. I wonder why. Are you busy doing other shows? <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little. Maybe a little. But uh, yeah, no, really excited to talk about this novel in particular. I do miss doing book reviews. I want to get back to that. But I do love that we at least every couple of weeks get to talk about a book on Positively Trek. That makes me really happy. Yeah, and we're going to talk about Federation. So I'm going to tell you how we came up with this book. So I went to my daughter. Well, first of all, I went to my wife and I said, I want you to just randomly pick a Star Trek novel, like Google, whatever, find something, a list of novels, just randomly pick one. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. So my daughter, who's 19, says, I'll do it. And she went in and she picked two novels that we've already covered either on this show or literary tracks. I can't remember what they were. And then all of a sudden she said Federation. I was like, yes, that's a good one. We've talked that we wanted to do it. So that's how this book was chosen, was my daughter randomly Googling Star Trek books online. Well, I I love it because Federation is one of those big event novels as well. And it's also the first one we're covering in 2021. So it's nice to kind of lead off with something a little bit, um, you know, a little bit monumentous, I guess. And I think this novel really qualifies. So great choice on her part. I'm really glad she picked it. Yeah. And she probably has no idea 
that this is a well-known book in the Star Trek community. So at least, well, I told her afterwards, but yeah, it was just a random pick. But this book did originally come out in November of 1994, and it's written by Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, husband and wife team. Uh, Some of you may have known them, not just from their previous novels, but they also uh, wrote a lot of the episodes in season four of Enterprise. I remember Mm -hmm. them from that. And uh, so they've had their feet in Star Trek lore for at least since the, I think, late 80s. Yeah. And they also, of course, co-wrote pretty much, well, all of William Shatner's Star Trek novels as well. So that's kind of a nice little, uh, if if you want their writing bona fides, those are some good ones as well. We reviewed their books on literary tracks, all those William Shatner or Shatnerverse novels as they're sometimes called. This novel, I have the hardcover book from the first printing because I bought this when it came out in November of 94. What I didn't remember was this came out the same month as Star Trek Generations. I was thinking from my memory that the that the book came out before Generations. Now, it's possible the book did come out just like weeks before the movie, And maybe that's why I'm thinking that, because I thought I read this book before the Generations movie hit theaters, uh, because I remember thinking, oh, this is the first time we see Kirk and Picard together. And I was Mm -hmm. like so excited to read this. Yeah, I remember seeing it on the shelves back then. I did not pick it up. I didn't read it for whatever reason at the time. But I remember kind of it kind of turning my head on the shelf like, oh, is that Kirk and Picard on the cover of the same novel? I thought they couldn't do that. Like I, I, that was just always something that like wasn't going to happen except of course, for the fact that Star Trek generations was ramping up for publicity and stuff at the time and all of that. And that was going to be the big momentous thing. I think I might even like remember this as, as, as thinking this was like, Oh, this is that movie that's coming out. Wait, I think that's called generations. This is something else. What is this? You know, but yeah, for whatever reason, I never picked it up at the time. I actually, have the uh, the paperback reprint uh, from 1995, the year after, uh, and a, a first edition of the paperback reprint, reprint. So a first edition of the second edition, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I remember they did another reprint with a different cover, and I think it was for the 40th anniversary. I believe so. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's a, actually a great cover in and of itself too. I love the original cover with. Uh, Kirk and Picard and a black hole behind them with the Federation seal in, uh, in the foreground. But yeah, the the cover they came out with later, and I think you're right, I think for the 40th anniversary, it's uh, a shot of the hand of Cochrane, the uh, the statue as described by LaForge in Star Trek First Contact, kind of stylized, interesting blue color to it and stuff. And he's, as Jordy would say, he's sort of reaching toward the future. So (laughs) it's a great cover as well. Yeah. I like this cover better because maybe also because to your point, like when I saw it in the stores, I was like, Kirk and Picard on the cover together. Oh, I've got to get this, you know, just somebody's (laughs) hand wouldn't mean much to me at all. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I, I I was excited to reread this. I think the only time I read it was when it came. I don't think I ever reread it. So this might've been the second time I've read this one. Hmm. I originally read it for the first time back in 2013, and the reason I know that is I wrote a review of it on my website at treklit.com at the time, but uh, I haven't read it since then, so this is my uh, second time reading it. 
So you bought the paperback in 95, but didn't read it until 2013. Uh, I'm pretty sure I got this paperback probably at a used bookstore, I think. Okay. So yeah, I didn't buy it originally in 95, I should say. I, I did pick it up, I think, much later. I have no idea where. There doesn't seem to be a uh, secondhand bookstore price tag on it or anything. But <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, maybe in this little ripped piece of uh, the back cover, I might have ripped it off. <laughs> oh, no. You don't rip up your covers just to get a price tag off, do you? I know. The only, like, looking at this, I'm like, would I have done that? I feel like maybe it. I found it like this, and that's Probably. just the way it was. Cause, I yeah. can't imagine you ripping covers. <laughs> I hope not. I'm very, I'm very disappointed in my past self, if that is the case. <laughs> maybe you were in desperate need of a bookmarker, and you're like, well, I'll just rip a corner off of the cover and use that as a bookmarker. Mm, no. Blasphemy. No, blasphemy, no, good no. sir. So, well, we're going to go into spoilers and everything, so... If you haven't read this book and you might not want to listen to this episode or you just want to listen to the episode, even if you didn't read the book, just so you know what the book's all about and then you don't need to read it or maybe then you want to go and read it. But to that point, Dan, speaking of picking up the book and going in and reading it at the time that you read this in 2013, what did you think how Zephyrin Cochran was written into the story because this book came out a couple of years before Star Trek First Contact. So there's a lot of differences in how they wrote his backstory and his first warp flight mission to Alpha Centauri on the Bonaventure and not the Phoenix. Yeah, this I, I kind of like this is a really good story. Like it's a really great novel, first of all, let me say. I kind of feel bad for the authors that just two years after they wrote this book, the exact same story elements that they used Cochrane and the first warp flight and to a lesser extent, first contact with the Vulcans, which kind of gets a bit of a mention in this book, but isn't tied to the Cochrane story. Uh, it's really too bad that all of those elements got used a couple years later in a totally, you know, the next big thing to come out Star Trek wise it basically writes this novel out of canon. Like, not that it was ever canon, but it's not following the continuity anymore. So, but that said, I really liked their portrayal of Cochrane. I thought it was a really thoughtful, interesting look at the person. And there's a few parallels to how he appears in First Contact. You know, he's not quite the, I would say, broken man, I guess, that he is in First Contact, but he's still a very rounded individual with foibles. Like, he's not this great, perfect man of history. He's a good man. Like, he's very virtuous, and it makes sense that his vision would usher in the Federation, but at the same time, he's got aspects of him where he stumbles and doesn't always make the right decision and doesn't always think the best thoughts and all this kind of stuff. So I really liked how well-rounded that character ended up being in this novel. Yeah. In the acknowledgement section of the book, in the back of the book, they even said here, Cochrane's adventures prior to and after inventing the warp drive are explorations solely of our own creation and thus could be superseded by official adventures in the years to come. Until then, we hope the audience will enjoy reading this one possible Star Trek adventure as much as we enjoyed writing it. It's almost like they knew something was coming. You know? <laughs> yeah. But to your point, I mean, it's, you know, I, I've seen some things I've read where people say, well, it still could kind of work because he goes on this eight month historic first warp flight on the Bonaventure. And 
some people place this right after his Phoenix uh, flight as if almost as if the Phoenix flight was more of like a test flight. And then this was the actual first interstellar flight on the Bonaventure, which of course the Bonaventure comes from the animated series when they said it was the first warp vessel that had ever existed. Yeah. I mean, there's some, I, I guess you could kind of squint and make it work, but I feel like it's almost a bit too much work because you know, first of all, the Cochrane that we see in first contact would have to be like 31 or 29 years old, somewhere in there. And I don't know, James Cromwell in 1996, I don't know if he could play that young, but okay. Radiation poisoning is what some books have said. I've heard that. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it, it, when it becomes more work to make it fit than it is to just, you know, enjoy it and accept that it doesn't quite fit. Uh, that's kind of where I draw the line personally. So, you know, I'm okay with this not fitting. And in, in my mind, it's it's not reconcilable. Like, and someone else may look at this and think differently and, and find ways to make it fit. And that's valid. That's fine. For me personally, I look at it and say, well, it it can't fit. But that's fine. Like, it's still a terrific story and I still really enjoy it for what it is. And yeah, it's like the authors say, it's one possible story in the Star Trek universe. You know, some of the things like all of the support he has, like infrastructure and that kind of thing, whereas First Contact has him and a very small crew kind of building it out of a nuclear missile in Montana in the, you know, aftermath of World War Three. whereas this one, he has the warp flight and World War Three happens years later when he's not even on the planet. There's just enough things like that that it becomes kind of untenable for it to to try and make it fit so i i just throw up my hands and say i don't really worry about it (laughs) yeah and that's a good point i also went back to the book federation the first 150 years and that book came out after uh first contact and it has world war three taking place before cochran's first warp flight and it portrays it a little differently and to your point world war three follows his first warp flight. As a matter of fact, he has a friend named Micah Brack who uh, tells him and warns him that, you know, because of his technology, war is eventually going to happen. It always happens with any technology, any advancement in the human race, there always seems to be war that follows. And uh, there's interest about funding his research project from Brack. He's helping fund his stuff, but you know, this all turns out to be true. But at the same time, then we find out, or it's speculated later in the book, that this Micah Brack is Flint. And I'm yeah. just like, where did I miss something? Or is that just only where Kirk speculates this at the end of the book? Oh, no, no. It's there from the very beginning. Absolutely. So if you watch the original episode that Flint is from, Requiem from Methuselah, Spock mentions that the planet that he lives on was originally purchased by a man by the name of Mr. Brack. And he suspects this is one of the many aliases that Flint has used throughout his existence, along with Da Vinci and Merlin and Brahms. And like even the, the, there's the Brahms symphony that they're listening to at the beginning, but it's not a Brahms symphony, but Cochrane says it's almost as though Brahms, wrote a new symphony that no one's ever heard of. This sounds like Brahms, but it's not one that I've ever been familiar with. Like, what's that about? And there's all these little hints throughout that, you know, if you're familiar with, with Brack and, and all and 
Flint in Requiem for Methuselah. They're they're very subtle, but they're really there. One of my favorites, and just jumping all over the novel towards the end, Zephram Cochran, and I mean we're we're deep into spoilers already, I think, in this yes. novel. So just here's your warning, I guess. But he survives in in one way until the next generation era. He's thinking to himself, I wonder about my old friend, Mr. Bra- Micah Brack. I wonder if he'd be jealous about how long I've been able to live. And I'm kind of like, <laughs> hey, 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 hey. nope. <laughs> See, I'm not that familiar with that episode. I've seen it. I'm f- somewhat familiar with Flint. And I know we've seen in other comics and novels of characters that are Flint. But I'm not that familiar with him that I didn't even pick up on it. And it wasn't until the end of the book where Kirk's like, could that have been Flint? And I'm like, wait. Why? What? Did I miss something? Yeah, I'm not as familiar, but that's pretty cool. I'm glad you went through that with me. That helps a lot. There's a lot of characters in here. Like basically almost any secondary character in this novel has been referenced before in Star Trek. So even uh, Cochrane's old friend, Sir John Burke, was the head of the Royal Academy. And he's given a name drop at the start of the episode, The Trouble with Tribbles where Spock is saying John Burke was the head of the Royal Academy from whatever. And Chekhov was saying it was some Russian that mapped this area of space. And Chekhov was like, ah, Royal Academy. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one I knew. That one I did pick up on. So that one's cool too. Yeah, there's a lot of things that, that are woven in through here that come from TOS and from TNG, but mostly TOS in this novel, which I think is a great way to write a novel called Federation because it almost feels like it should be an anniversary book, even though it didn't really come out during an anniversary, but it has that feeling to it. Yeah. One thing this novel does, I find, is it really links the past of Star Trek to its future, if that makes sense. And that maybe sounds really obvious, but there's always this feeling when I'm watching Star Trek that like, you know, there's the 20th and the 21st centuries and then there's kind of like, oh, and then something happens and now we're in Star Trek, you know? Right. And this one, you kind of trace that. And and because a lot of these characters are ones that have been mentioned or are ancestors of people that we see in Star Trek, we see an ancestor of Richard Daystrom, for example, and a bunch of other characters. It really has this thread that links it all through that makes it feel like, oh, this is this is the path to there. And this is what happens in those intervening years. And this is you know, how the Federation comes to be basically. So I, I don't know. I, re- I really like that about it, that it made somehow made all of Star Trek feel more real because of this story, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Even though it doesn't connect with first contact with Cochrane, it's just another interesting story that has been concocted about Cochrane that could have happened. It's, you know, every time we pick up fiction, it's really a what if scenario. And this is another what if scenario. And even talks about the Klingons not having first contact with the Klingons until much later than what we've seen in Enterprise, which is really more consistent with what I think there was a line that McCoy said in a TOS episode about 50 years ago or something, War with Klingon or something like that. I remember maybe somebody making a comment one time about Enterprise not matching up to that, whatever. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It's like there's different things here. Even Vulcans, it kind of indicates that maybe first contact came a little later with the Vulcans. It didn't say it was first contact. It just said that that Cochran was like really starting to work with the Vulcans or mm-hmm. something or, or Vulcoids or something Vul- like 
Volcanians. Yeah. Volcanians. Yeah. It was something like that. So yeah, there's little things like that peppered throughout that makes it a lot of fun. The other interesting thing is about the origin of the Delta shield and how that is portrayed in here that the little star in the Delta shield represents the speed of light. And Cochrane is trying to use a diagram using the star representing that speed of light and then drawing these lines to show that, you know, the faster you go to reach the speed of light requires more mass or, you know, and, and a lot more energy to get there. And then if you come out of that, it comes back down. And, but you know, the way he can bend space time or whatever and distort things that and then he draws the next little lines or whatever under the star to represent how he can get close to uh, doing speed of light warp without getting, you know, the big mass. What I don't know. It's confusing. Something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot of techno babble, but it's really clever how they make the Starfleet logo the the visual representation basically of the Cochrane distortion continuum distortion impeller which is apparently the like full real name of the warp drive basically. And that was a lot of fun. I thought that was really interesting Uh, and just clever. Like I I love really clever things in novels. And if nothing else, Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens, along with like all the characters they throw in all the little tiny continuity tie-ins, they're clever. They're really, really clever. And that's just another illustration of that. Yeah, because if you're a big Star Trek fan like we are, you will benefit from this quite a bit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it feels like like just little rewards for people who really, really, really pay attention to this stuff, you know? And there's yeah. different levels. Like, you know, there's there's the sur- more surface level and then there's the like the real hardcore nerd throwaway lines that like one in... 150 fans will get kind of thing but it's so nice that they include those that's really really cool yeah and this book even though kirk and picard are portrayed on the original cover and to your point they later it's cochran's hand in the 40th anniversary edition it makes sense to have his hand there because to me after reading this novel this is really a zemfran cochran novel mm-hmm. it's not so much a kirk picard or tos tng crossover it's part of it, but to me, it really comes across as a Cochrane story because, and actually it's, to me, it's probably the more interesting part of the story, just even his backstory with the optimum movement and how all that played out in the mid 21st century. And this Colonel Adric Thorson, who is a future version of Hitler in all respects. So, I mean, it's, he's in this thing where he wants to develop the warp bomb and he's looking to Cochrane to do it. Cause Cochrane had did in a, a test, he did create something that wiped out a certain area of a planet without any radiation poisoning afterwards. And this guy Thorson wants him to recreate that and make the warp bomb. And he's like, well, that's, you can't, necessarily do that and that's when he draws the little delta shield and all that and again techno babble comes into this but did you enjoy the whole world war three optimum movement and all that storyline in this i thought that was really interesting because again it's kind of linking to our time and showing how you know something like this could happen one thing that kind of chilled me a little bit about this compared to when I read it in 2013 
was them talking about the kind of rise of right wing fascist movements in various countries all around the world that are kind of part of this optimum movement. That was a little bit chilling because we've been seeing a little bit of that in various places around the world, you know, just slightly more right wing, what some people would call fascist governments kind of coming into, into power and stuff. And, uh, yeah, so I, I felt that had a little bit more resonance to me this time around than before, which is probably not the best thing, but you know, it was, it was fascinating to see kind of an alternate world of ours and, and how this could all kind of get going. And the visionaries like John Burke and Zephram Cochran and stuff and how they kind of cope with that and rise above it and, and what they do and kind of thinking like, where would I be in a world like that? And how would I cope and and that kind of thing? It's a little scary to think about, but it was, it was an interesting part of the story that I really got into reading this. I did too. I almost want to say it was probably one of my favorite parts of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Just for the reasons that you mentioned, there was a lot of things to think about. First of all, could our future be this way? It's it's hard in a lot of ways for me to imagine that there's a dictator that comes about that is sterilizing our population to keep the strong and get rid of the weak. Of course, again, referring to Hitler, we've seen something like that before in our history, but I like to think that we've moved beyond that. But there's several days that I look at things in the world and think, maybe we haven't, and maybe we are in a situation that we are set up to repeat things in history. And this is a time of Colonel Green is involved. And to your point, John Burke, the astronomer that was mentioned in The Trouble Tribbles, he's with Cochrane in this story, and he has a daughter named Monica. And uh, they get into, you know, an action-adventure fight with Thorson and his troops at the, the Battersea Stadium. And they're able to escape, but also not necessarily kill Thorson, but damage him quite a bit, which comes a little later in the story. But just seeing this all take place and creating this World War III, but at the same time, people have are leaving the planet. They're leaving Earth and they're starting these colonies on other planets where they're not even affected by this. And this is one of the things that drives Thorson crazy because people are leaving and he wants them to stay there so he can work to create this sterilized world of only keeping the strong yet some of the strong are leaving, <laughs> you know, it's an interesting play. Absolutely. The other thing I was reminded of was Pol Pot in Cambodia. Like this really feels like what that movement was as well, where basically they took like the, the strong rural hardworking farmer people and made them in charge of everything and like emptied out the cities of the the intellectuals and the doctors and things like that and you know the killing fields of cambodia are are famous or infamous right for for the the huge numbers of people that were slaughtered in that movement and like i was recently learned about that history when i visited cambodia a few years ago and and that was really echoing through this as well and like that was, you know, in the seventies. So not that long ago, we're getting further away from it now, but you know, these, these movements can crop up. And I, I feel like 
I'm, I'm getting on a bit of a soapbox here, but we have a tendency in the West to, to say, well, that could never happen here. That would never happen here, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we're always fairly close to somebody really charismatic coming along and reshaping the world in, in however he or she sees fit. Right. And, you know, Germany in the, the twenties was a first world country. They were beaten by the war and had to pay all these reparations and stuff, but they were a democracy and Hitler came to power in that environment and did all of the things he did. And at that time there were people saying, well, that would never happen. That could never happen. Right. And, I think that's the danger. And I think that's what we always need to remember. Uh, that That's my sobering, Dan's sobering moment for the episode. <laughs> but yeah, I, to your point, I feel like, oh no, that could never happen. But I think that's pretty naive now. You know, I think when I look at things, I'm not saying the way things are today in the world or in my country or somebody else's country necessarily, but just looking at history and the more I've, I've looked at history and you just see certain things kind of repeat themselves. And, you know, there are certain things that go on in this world today that I thought we've moved beyond or aren't that way anymore. Then I find out, no, they still are that way. Or we're repeating back to that way. It's like, everything comes like full circle and it kind of scares me, but at the same time, you know, it's just, you got to deal with the hand you're dealt with. You know, it's, I, I mean, who would ever think that we would have a situation like with COVID? Mm-hmm. You know, that to me is something I would have thought, oh, that only happened back in the old days with science. We would never have a plague that just goes, that that sounds too sci-fi now. I mean, that probably would never happen. Yet here we are. <laughs> yeah. And exactly like that kind of situation exactly is the kind of thing that if somebody were in the right position to do so, they could really take advantage of the chaos that is sown by that to, you know, take power or, or do something drastic and horrible. So you know, as Picard says in the episode, the drumhead, constant vigilance, Mr. Worf, that's what's needed. You know, we must ensure that someone like Adric Thorson, for example, is never given the power that he needs to, you know, do his worst. Yeah, no, exactly. And the one redeeming thing I like about this is once he is conquered in this part of the story and the movement falls apart, the world of earth decides that, you know, we can't be like this again. And then it becomes more of the utopia. So as a result of a world war three, we then rise ourselves above that and become this utopia world that at least we know in the 23rd and 24th centuries does not go into war in itself or have some kind of dictator like this. We don't know what happens in the centuries that follow. Maybe we'll find that out on discovery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of storytelling in Star Trek that, yeah, the, the World War Three stuff is horrific and, and terrifying, but it's that world afterwards that I'm like, can we strive for that, please? Can we get there somehow? Can we get there without the world burning? That would be ideal. <laughs> but, you know, like when I talk about how much I love Star Trek, that's the future that I imagine is that that wonderful world where, you know, poverty is ended and racism is ended and, and you know, all of these things are a thing of the past. Uh, and, and I really wish the rest of the world could get on board with that. You know, like, let's let's use Star Trek as our holy doctrine, I guess, and, and follow that message. 
And that's one of the reasons I love this book so much is I feel like it's written with that Star Trek ideal in mind and a celebration of what that represents. Yeah. And I know that, I mean, Star Trek is fiction, but I do believe in it. I'm not saying that we're going to be exactly like that, but to your point, that hope and that belief that we will move beyond those things that you mentioned and not even just our behavior, but just things from curing the common cold to curing cancer or whatever it is. Like, I mean, maybe it's too pie in the sky. I don't know, but it's like, you know, the human race has the ability to strive beyond what it is. And that's, what's important. We need to hold on to that. And the only way you're going to make it is if we all come together and we create that hope and that belief in ourselves that we can make it happen. And that is a very powerful thing that can accomplish these goals. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with striving for something, even if it is ultimately impossible. It's the strive for that world that I think is important. And, you know, if we don't strive for it, there's no chance for it. So why not strive for that? Yeah. And even if we're not going to agree on everything, we can respect each other's beliefs. We can respect each other's wants and needs, but we can find that common ground to get there. Why do I feel like we're standing on soapboxes right now, Dan? <laughs> there needs to be like music swelling. <laughs> this is getting a little bit ridiculous, but yeah, no, that's uh, yeah. I'm just, that's how I want our future to be. You know, this really says a lot about this book too, because look what that just brought out in us in this conversation. That's what this book accomplished. So I'm going to tell you right now, this book gets five stars out of five. Because for a Star Trek book to bring this out of us is doing its job. That's what Star Trek is. But I won't say it's not everything's perfect. I'm going to bring up one thing that bothers me. Even though this is called Positively Trek, I'm going to bring one little thing that's a little negative into this. And I want to see if you had an issue with this part. There's a section in here that is talking about how the world dealt with the aftermath of World War III when... Cochrane is surprised to see that we have a fleet admiral on the Enterprise that is a woman. And he's surprised to see a woman in power because certainly Kirk would be the one in power and the, and, and, and the woman would be answering to him because women took a step back after World War III to go back into the role of the protected category to help, you know, <laughs> kind of repopulate worlds or whatever. It's... And I I really thought this was a strange thing, even for 1994, for the authors to portray women as something that in the 22nd century were kind of regressing back to being housewives and stay-at-home moms. Is that, that seems a little odd. And I don't know, and I thought about it afterwards, I don't know if this is just their answer to the sexism that can be found in TOS. See, that was my thinking as well, because yeah, I definitely... Uh, kind of tripped on that a little bit as well and was kind of going, this is, seems really strange. What's what's this about? And yeah, I think, and I I'm, I'm, don't want to put words in the author's mouths necessarily, but I think what that was, was exactly as you said, it was kind of, one, one thing they do in all of their novels, as we've seen, is they they try and not fix continuity errors, but link everything together to make it all make sense somehow. And I feel like this was them taking that sexism that we see in the original series of Star Trek, which is there definitely does exist and is a thing and putting that into continuity as like, 
oh, we're still on our way back from these dark ages where uh, we had to do this because of reasons, which, you know, I don't really, I don't really subscribe to what they said were the reasons for that. But I, I feel like that was their attempt at kind of explaining that. I don't think based on everything I've read from this author duo that they believe any kind of philosophy like that. But I, I just think it was them trying to reframe what we see in the original series as like coming out of that world, if that makes sense. That's what I was thinking. Like I said, afterwards I started thinking about it and that's what I thought, because we've read so many of their novels and they, you know, this is even at a time of TNG and they would know, you know, the message of TNG about equality between men and women that I can't imagine they would write something like this. And I thought, why would they do that? And I thought, Oh, I bet the way TOS portrays, women in command and even we have that what's the last episode the corbinite no uh what's the last turnabout intruder turnabout intruder that's it that line about you know starfleet not having room for women captains i know i'm paraphrasing that's not exactly how it's said but it's kind of implied to be that way and i thought that's probably it to your point but outside of that i mean well who knows what happens after world war three anyway (laughs) i mean we could regress to all kinds of weird things temporarily but anyway uh that was one thing that really stood out to me but this whole optimum movement about everything having to be perfect and everything being at its optimum best and all these things what do you think of that whole concept and and how then Thorson then comes back and uh, we'll get more into it a little later, but he comes back and he has these prosthetic enhancements that he helped that from the Gregari that helped him look kind of this weird looking machine like thing. Yeah, it, I think it does a good job of illustrating the inherent flaw of that philosophy and that movement right is you know nobody is like what is optimum right what is perfection and this is a this is a theme that comes up again and again in science fiction there's the you know nomad space probe sterilizing the imperfect and it realizes it's imperfect so it sterilizes itself and blows up and you know even uh thorson when we get views into his thinking and stuff when we get his point of view He's constantly worried, like he says, oh no, this is not optimum. I'm not optimum, you know? This inherent, like, horrible, destructive philosophy that just, there's no single human being that could ever live up to optimum, whatever that means. And just the dismissal of anybody with some small defect up until, up, up to, you know, large defects in his mind or whatever is just like, it, it's such a horrible philosophy. And it ultimately is what destroys him, is his striving to be optimal, right? So, uh, yeah, and he gets rid of all the doctors and then gets his half his body blown up, you know? Like, this is not a, you know, because you don't need doctors because the weak, the strong survive and the, and the weak perish, right? So why would you need doctors? They just help the weak survive. But yeah, that's not how real life works, <laughs> Yeah, and what's funny to me, what he's trying to accomplish is perfection in the world. And the result is that he is not successful at that. But what happens afterwards is the world does become more optimal. Because, not because of his, what he did, the after effect of what he did, the world can do it on their own. 
they can strive per- for perfection and their optimal use of themselves as opposed to someone deciding for them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know? And I mean, Thorson, I think he would look at 23rd, 24th century Earth and say it's not optimal, right? Because, you know, people like Jordi LaForge are allowed to walk around and their eyes don't work without, you know, something to help them. So that's not optimal, but you know, to us, that is optimal. That is perfection, allowing equality of opportunity for everybody, you know, regardless of what might be termed a disability or whatever, right? Who you love, how you think, what color you are. Like it's the whole philosophy of Star Trek, Idic, in infinite diversity and infinite combination, right? Gene Roddenberry said, the diversity of, of humans is something to be celebrated, not just tolerated. You know, we have to celebrate our differences, you know, because if we go out in the galaxy, we won't be able to get along with anybody out there if we can't celebrate our own individual differences. So just as a pure illustration of what the world of Star Trek becomes afterwards, I think you're absolutely right. You hit it on the head perfectly. That's the optimal world. That's what optimal should mean. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And uh, he, yeah, he just didn't get it. It's not his place to decide, you know, it mm-hmm. takes the village <laughs> to decide it, not the one person. But, you know, so the the format of this book, it goes from a chapter that has to do with Cochrane and the optimum movement. And then it goes to the next chapter, which would be Kirk's Enterprise. The next chapter would be Picard's Enterprise. Then we're back to Cochrane chapter, Kirk chapter, Picard chapter. It's just simplifying it there. But that's how the book plays out. So everything we've talked about so far is about Cochrane, and that takes place through these these chapters throughout the book. But in between that are these Kirk and Picard chapters. And what is interesting to me is how there's a lot of parallels between the two stories, between the two enterprises. For example, when we start off on the 1701 with Kirk, it takes place right after Journey to Babel, when we have Sarek on the ship. But then when we get to the next chapter with the 1701D, it starts with the events right after the TNG episode of Sarek with Sarek on the ship. So just right there and how those things start off are parallels to each other. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting, the other, yeah, the one thing I like about this novel too, is that they do take place very specific points of time in the respective series, right? It's not just like, oh, sometime in the third year of whatever. It's like, yeah, it's right between these episodes. So I really appreciated that. And I liked those little links because of course, Picard mind melded with Sarek. So he's got these little ghosts of like, seem to remember a poker game, something about tongue depressors. And we see that <laughs> poker game in the, in the original series, 1701 part of the book, for example. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And then we connect to the episode of metamorphosis because we have Cochran who has fled trying to get captured from Thorson. He was after him in later years. And that's why Cochran flees earth or flees wherever he is, Alpha Centauri, wherever he's been. And that leads to the episode of metamorphosis. And then in this beginning chapter of the story, they receive a message or Starfleet receives a message from Nancy Hedford from that episode, who is believed by them to be dead. But why six months later or so would they get a message from her? Because Kirk's log said she passed away. 
And so we get this admiral that boards their ship who I say is a piece of work. But, <laughs> you know, as the novel goes, I kind of start to understand her point of view. But she's Fleet Admiral Corlo Cabrini. And she is questioning Kirk, you know, are you part of this conspiracy? She keeps bringing a conspiracy. And Kirk's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But she takes control of the ship because there's this message and there's this ship out there, this liner called the City of Utopia Planitia that's missing. And she's got a, she wants to find it. And Kirk's really kind of questioning, why is it so important for her to go find this missing ship? Something's up, you know? She thinks he's part of some conspiracy, but then he thinks maybe she is. Mm. And there's this whole thing going on. I, you know, this Admiral was driving me crazy at the beginning because she acted like she knows everything. She's taking over the ship. And she, even though she's an Admiral, she doesn't really have experience captaining a ship. She's never been in command like this before. Yeah, it really goes to show that, like, the whole philosophy of the Federation is built on trust and communication. And that just breaks down here because each side is thinking the other is hiding something and all of this, and they can't be open and honest with each other. And it all kind of links back to Kirk, Spock and McCoy, not revealing that Cochrane is alive on this planet as per his request. And so everyone's kind of hiding something and, you know, even Spock gets a little fed up with Kirk as far as like how secretive he's being. I feel like if either side had kind of just made the move and trusted the other, it would have gone a lot more smoothly. But of course you can't because you think the other person is a bad actor, right? Like you think yeah. they're doing harm. So. And Kirk is, is keeping this silence about Cochrane because that was his promise to Cochrane. Exactly. Yeah. But it, it really shows what a destructive force that lack of trust and, and that idea that someone is, is evil can do, right? Like it can really undermine how things work. And it, it really, it really disrupts a lot of things here. It sounds like an episode of three's company to me, a lot oh. of miscommunication and misunderstanding <laughs> happening. <laughs> Mr. Furley's hearing something through the door of the kitchen that he shouldn't be hearing. And he thinks it's something else. That's not anyway, but that's <laughs> Mr. Furley should be an admiral. That would be great. But I also thought this, this point that even Kirk's log hides Cochrane's situation, that Cochrane's on this planet with the companion because that was a promise to Cochrane. But then he does his own personal log that is then placed in Starfleet archives, which the rule is that log will not be opened or listened to for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. And it's that information in the log that eventually sets this all off because yeah, Thorson has this Grigari augmentations added to him and it allows him to break into the computer system and, and find that. So you know, actually, to kind of fly counter to my previous point, maybe it's not the secrecy that destroyed everything. It was Kirk actually revealing the secret in his personal log that set everything off. So Ooh. if he would have just done what Cochrane said and not breathed a word ever, you know, this might not have happened. <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Ooh. Maybe the Federation should be built on secrecy and lies. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there was like a bombing or something at the Starfleet archives. It reminded me of Into Darkness, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I was picturing that scene. But uh, so then they get to this ship, this liner where uh, it's Cochran's on it. They find out he was kidnapped by Orions. They're the ones who came to the planet, took him. We also find out that 
there's some Klingons involved in this. All this stuff's going on, and it's like, what do the Klingons want with Cochrane? But it doesn't seem like the Orions or even the Klingons know who Cochrane is. But then we find that Thorson is still alive, still behind this, because of the Gregari implants or whatever they did to him. All this stuff is going on, and he's got the Orions and Klingons helping him and all that stuff. So all this adventure is taking place. The Enterprise is able to figure out a way to get Cochrane to their ship, but they need to run from the Orion ship. They're being attacked, and they start to go to the Singularity, this black hole area. They have Cochrane on their ship. They have the Companion. I'm going through this, whipping through real quick, because we'll be here all day. Um, <laughs> but then we have Cochrane and the Companion say, look, you know, it's Thorson that wants Cochrane, not the Enterprise. In order to save the Enterprise, maybe they should go off into shuttlecraft, the Eon Shelton, and they'll be bait for Thornton, and then they'll, uh, the Enterprise will beam Cochrane and the Companion back to the ship and let the shuttlecraft go towards uh, Thornton's ship because it will have a missile or whatever on it that will ignite and blow up the ship. Anyway, it's a whole, long, it's a whole complicated mess. <laughs> I, I like that the Orions were involved. I don't know why, but I just really like that. Maybe because we're watching Discovery right now and we've got <laughs> Orions. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting. I, I liked the science of the black hole and, and that kind of thing, the singularity and all of that. So yeah, it was it was it was interesting and fun for sure. And then we've got the Enterprise D that in that same parallel type story that's going on, as we said, it follows the episode Sarek, but they come upon a warbird, which I kinda like this story a little better, I think, than the seventeen oh one story. They come upon a warbird uh, that decloaks a Romulan ship and it's Damon Powell of the Ferengi Alliance that is commanding this Romulan ship. And that's strange in itself. But he says that he has this Borg artifact that he can provide to them. And so they ask for the coordinates of where they can go see this artifact. And so the Enterprise goes to those coordinates and finds that another Romulan ship is there commanded by Trawl. And she brings them on board and says, yeah, you want this artifact? Take it. Because I don't trust my people are going to figure out how to defeat the Romulans. So I'm going against my people and I'm bringing you this Borg artifact so the Federation can study it and figure out a way how to stop the Borg to help protect not just her people, but everyone involved. I love this story because when they look at the artifact, they find something from the preservers and the way team, which is Jordy, Data, and Riker, asked Picard to beam over to take a look at it. And then they discover, wow, the Preservers has this object in it that's powering the Borg artifact. I thought this was cool. What did you think? Yeah, this was a fun story as well. I enjoyed uh, the interactions with the the Ferengi and the, the Romulans and stuff. That was interesting. And yeah, the preserver artifact. I, I still have a bit of a problem with the preservers, and I know the way they've used them in novels is differently. The only canon mention of the preservers is from the episode The Paradise Syndrome, where they interfered with Earth and, and brought Native Americans to that planet like 200 years ago. So it's funny that like the novel verse has made them billions of years old and have done all these things. So I, I don't know. It, it works though. It's I've, I've come to just accept that the preservers are these billion year old 
amazing beings and not just the aliens that kidnapped the native americans in that one episode yeah i know i see what you're saying but i do i I love how they're weaving in different elements of course from tos into the book and that's what i'm enjoying so we've got the preserve artifact with the borg artifact together but not only that but as we talked about with the 1701 it was the orions and the klingons with the 1701d it's the Ferengi and the Romulans. So again, we're bringing in all the baddies, you know, into this novel in some way. But then, you know, they, of course, start messing around with the preserver object and link it to the Enterprise. And then it takes over the Enterprise, which then takes over Data, because it's actually Thorson whose essence is in this artifact. And he takes over Data and he's now the Data thing in this novel. I like the emphasis on the fact that like, it's no longer Thorson though, that like their Gregari technology has so corrupted him that he's just like this weird essence. That's not really the original person anymore. I liked that emphasis on the destructive part of it that, you know, he hasn't really survived all this time. Like he died way back when this is just like, the evil that was within him is basically all that survived. I thought that was an interest. I, I like that emphasis on it. I have to say, I really enjoyed the whole thing with data being taken over and how fearsome that was. And I could just, I could totally hear Brent Spiner doing like the evil data thing, which, you know, we've seen lots in TNG when he plays lore or I was thinking of in the episode Power Play where he's one of the one of the crew members taken over by the little glowy lights and he threatens hostages in 10 forward. I was totally like, I can absolutely hear Brent Spiner delivering these lines <laughs> with that evil data personality. I thought that was great. Same here, because we've seen so much evil data in our time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard to, to imagine it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, the nice thing about this is the two storylines converge because then the Enterprise-D goes into the black hole trying to escape the Romulans. Another Romulan ship shows up, which is actually commanded by the husband of Commander Taro. And again, I'm just kind of briefly going over some things. So the two Enterprises are in this wormhole and they need to then eventually be able to get out. And one Enterprise detects the other and then vice versa. but the original enterprise knows that it's a futuristic enterprise and well, they know it's a future Starfleet ship. I don't think they know it's the enterprise, but the enterprise D does know that the other ship is Kirk's enterprise. And like, so you have to get into that whole thing of like, well, we can't reveal who we are. And Kirk's like, I don't need to know about the future. We got to be careful about all this. So they're not really communicating with each other, but then they both get to this conclusion that in order to escape, they have to work together without even communicating with each other. And it's brought up on both from Picard and Kirk, the prisoner's dilemma, which is, and here's the great thing about this, is you have to work together because if you don't and you only work in your self-interest, you do not produce the optimal outcome, which is, you know, here again, we go back to how Thorson as an individual thinks he can make the optimal outcome, but really it's about working together and not working in your self-interest is going to get you to the optimal outcome. I loved this whole sequence. I thought it was a terrific way of bringing these two ships together 
And like, there's one moment where Cochrane's in the shuttle and he's looking out the viewports and seeing the two enterprises and he can see them just as clear as day. Whereas, you know, the, or the 1701 is, you know, fuzzing out the enterprise D so they don't get influenced by future information and stuff. But Cochrane sees them flying in formation together, allowing us reading it to see that as well. And I love that this maneuver relies on both of them having to trust and rely on the other one. It's yeah. just such a perfect metaphor for Starfleet and the Federation and the values that they represent. And those get directly called out by both Picard and Kirk saying they're not trusting the person. Like they're not trusting the individual. They're trusting the tradition, the organization, the values of their shared society. And I was like, ah, oh, that's terrific. That's <laughs> such a great metaphor for Star Trek and the Federation and all of that. I'm getting the warm and fuzzies right now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I just want to fast forward then because they are able to get out of the black hole. Cochrane now ends up on the Enterprise D along with the companion. So there's some scenes between him and Picard. But then uh, there's a scene later that takes place after the movie Generations, where Picard is on Titan, the moon that was seen earlier, the moon of Saturn that was seen earlier in this episode. And uh, he receives a letter from Kirk, because Kirk decided, after all of this, to write a letter to this future captain about what he did. And it was just a nice scene to see this communication between Kirk and Picard. And this is after Picard met Kirk in Generations. So it just has more of, I don't know, there's just something about it where Kirk, you know, Picard regret, like, oh, I never got to say anything to Kirk about this thing that happened in the black hole. We just didn't have time. And, and now he's getting this letter from Kirk. And Kirk never knowing that Picard was that captain. Yeah. I thought that was a really nice way first to skirt the issue with generations, because as you said, generations came out like within a month or two of this novel being published. So there's probably not a, like they probably knew Kirk and Picard are going to meet at some point and then like, Oh, okay. Now we know more about the movie. They probably got some insight. So they were able to pepper in a couple little references, but you know, they still have to kind of work around the fact that, yeah, these two do meet at some point. This doesn't come up. So uh, I liked that little skirt around it there. And that letter, it's really poignant and just a lovely moment. I also love that the statue of Cochrane there, like it originally had, you know, his birth year and then like just a blank for when he died because no one knew. But they just recently chiseled in the year, which was like very recently like tng season three because he technically lived to that time i thought that was really cool just uh neat one other quick little thing the community they're at is called christopher's landing did yes. you get that reference uh, uh no <laughs> i feel like i knew but now i can't remember i think i looked it up so the original series episode tomorrow is yesterday uh captain uh john christopher uh, his son, Colonel Sean Jeffrey Christopher, did yes. the first Earth-Saturn probe. So, you know, this Christopher's landing must be he landed on Titan here or something. So I thought that was yes. clever. <laughs> See, there's a lot of little things in there. I love it. It's so, so clever. They're so good. <laughs> <laughs> and there's probably some we missed or oh, forgot I'm sure about. I mean, there's tons Absolutely. of it. So good. 
One thing I thought that was cool then here at the end of the book, then there's a chapter about the distant future. And it's a future enterprise that's investigating a preserver artifact that leads them through a doorway into alternate dimensions. Now, when I was reading this, I thought, okay, this is a future enterprise in the distant future. I like to think it's during the time that Discovery is in right now. Oh, <laughs> I, I feel it's like beyond it's that. beyond that. Absolutely. Yeah. It feels like way beyond personally, but yeah, I love that they're, they're in the void between the galaxies and they've, it, it's like the feeling I get from this novel is there's, there's this whole other community of races and species out there that are just so far above and beyond us. And I was recently watching a YouTube video. I'm going to get all philosophical and stuff. And the, the, the scientist, I forget which scientist it was, but he had the theory of different levels of, of civilization. So a type one, type two, type three civilization, and like a type one civilization is one that has utilized all of the available energy of their planet and then type two is of their local star and type three is of the entire galaxy. And like the people of Star Trek in the 24th century and even in the 32nd century, they're not yet a type three civilization. Yeah. Like they're, they're just, it's such a baby step compared to what people have theorized is out there. So I imagine there's this whole just other level that like the Federation and the Romulans and the Klingons, oh, they're too primitive. We haven't contacted them yet. Just like I imagine maybe we are in our galaxy. There's civilizations out there on the level of Star Trek that are like, oh, we don't contact Earth yet. They're too primitive kind of thing. So, yeah. you know, like right now on Earth, it's been said we're at about a point six civilization or something like we're not yet a type one civilization. So I, I, I don't know. I just, that's the impression I got from this chapter was like, Oh, this is the next step. They're meeting that next level and maybe they'll be joining this new federation, uh, like this bigger, better, awesomer galaxies spanning federation or something. I don't know. Well, at least they're still naming their ships enterprise that far yeah, in the future. That was cool. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, yeah, I really got the impression this is very, very, very far into the future. I mean, yeah, it could be a couple thousand or a few thousand years from Star Trek timeline. But I, I was wondering at the time, what is the purpose of this chapter? And then it, it dawned on me, especially when we get to the very end with The Guardian of Forever, we have Kirk talking to The Guardian of Forever, which the book starts with Kirk approaching the guardian of forever. He's getting ready to retire. He's waiting for the Excelsior to come pick him up, take him back to earth. So he can be there for the christening of the enterprise B. And he's contemplating the end of his career and the end of his life and the end of adventures. And he's asking the guardian why, and the guardian hasn't spoken for many years and he's just asking why. And this novel is the story that the guardian tells Kirk or has Kirk envision through his time there, even though it's probably only seconds that Kirk's standing there, but we get this whole story and it's answering the question of why, like why, you know, almost sees, you know, what's the end. And it's showing him that when we see this distant future, that even though his journey may end, the journey continues. 
the mm-hmm. journey of humanity, the journey of Starfleet, the journey of the Enterprise will always continue. Yeah, I thought that was beautiful. I, I absolutely, absolutely loved it. And I feel like this depiction of the Guardian of Forever and spoilers for season three of Star Trek Discovery, if you haven't watched that, here's your little warning for this little next couple minutes. But I felt like this depiction of the Guardian of Forever fit really well with what we see in Discovery because we get a little bit of an internal monologue of the Guardian of Forever here when he says, like, I'll sit here and wait until another worthy question comes along. And I was like, oh, this this feels way more like a personified being. And I was like, oh, it's Carl sitting on his chair waiting. (laughs) I just love that. I thought that was great. Um, And I love that kind of showing Kirk because the Guardian sees time, right? So he knows Kirk is nearing the end of his journey and felt like in this moment, Kirk needed that answer of why. Like, why are we doing this? Why why are we doing this as the Federation? Like what, where, what's going on with the, this, this whole existence, this period that I've contributed to this whole big, long story. Why? Like, what is the point of it all? And he showed him, this is the point of it all. This is what it's all about. This is what you are a part of. And I was just like, ah, that's so good. (laughs) Glorious. Perfect. I mean, there's nothing more to say past that, in my opinion. Um, (laughs) I think this has been a great book, a great discussion. I think because of this book, this has been one of our better episodes uh, because there's just so much there to chew on. So, Dan, what are your final thoughts on Federation? Oh, man. I mean, it's it's, it's all been said, right? Like, I love this novel. I, I really enjoyed it the first time I read it. I think I enjoyed it more this time around because... As I get older, I get like a little bit more, I don't know if idealistic is the right word. That's, that's maybe not right. I've almost gotten more jaded, so that doesn't really make sense. But I feel like reading this book right now was just a little bit of therapy that I needed after 2020 and everything that's kind of happened and just kind of a little bit of a reminder, like a shot in the arm, maybe a vaccination against the negativity <laughs> that's been going on, if that make, if that makes sense. The the Star Trek ideals that are embodied in this novel and like what it says and, and that basic question of why, like, why are we doing this? Why should we strive for a better world? Why should we care about what happens and, and after we're gone? Like this book just answers it. And I know it's fiction. I know I'm putting too much stock into it probably, but it just fills me with the warm and fuzzies as you said earlier i just love this novel for the big ideas in it the plot itself and the characters and all of that is really good as well like it's entertaining as heck you can enjoy it just on that level but i think for the the deeper promise of that word that is the title of the novel federation i just think this really does a great job of putting that in an historical context and and showing us how it came to be and where it's all going. And I just, yeah, five out of five, uh, five uncorrupted, perfect preserver artifacts that aren't infected by uh, Thorson with his Grigari technology. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, there isn't much I can add to that. 
you know, the question of why we're, we keep bringing that up, it reminds me of, you know, when I was studying uh, some improv, because I do improv occasionally and such, and I, I'll take uh, some workshops around uh, improv. One of the things that has been taught to me is that when you're doing a scene on stage, that scene has to have some element as to why this story has to be told. It can't just be, oh, it was a regular day at the coffee shop and I was having coffee with my spouse in the coffee shop and that's the scene. That Why is that story being told? It's just an everyday scene. So it's got to be something unique, something different, something important. And I feel that this novel is that big why. There's this reason this story has to be told. There's a reason why... Federation is a Star Trek novel that needs to be read because I feel that it is telling the story of Star Trek and why the Federation exists and why the missions are occurring in Starfleet and why we are Star Trek fans. I mean, I think this answers so many things and maybe I'm putting it on too much of a pedestal right now, but I really did enjoy the book that much. And so there's a lot of Star Trek stories that you get out there and there's really no reason why that story was told, but there's a good reason why this story is being told. So I would give this one five out of five Delta shields that Cochran drew on a piece of paper. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, I think this has been one of my favorite discussions of star trek that i've ever had with you or with anybody really like this has been such a fun conversation same here and to your point it's the same thing i think i like this book better the second time i read it than the first time i read it and also because when i read this book it was earlier in my star trek fandom and now i know star trek more and more it just impacts me more but also just one thing i wanted to point out even though it was written in 94 and it isn't consistent with some things that we've seen in first contact or an enterprise or any other future star Trek. Things don't always have to fit. I mean, you know, I've seen different versions of Clark Kent growing up on Smallville that contradict one another. It's just different stories. That's what fiction is. And if it all has to fit and you have to pretend it all takes place in the same universe, well, then this is a different timeline for Cochran than what yeah. you've seen on screen. So exactly. It, yeah. It's about the story and what the story tells and not so much of how it fits in with everything. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more on that one. So anyway, well, guess what? We're going to talk about another book on our next book club, and we're going to have the author here, James Swallow, to talk about the latest novel, Star Trek Picard, The Dark Veil. And this is the one that takes place on the Titan with Captain Riker and Commander Troy. And I've already read it and I'm looking forward to talking about it. Ooh. So yeah, it takes place on the Titan. It's called the dark veil. Is that like the first officer Christine veil goes all evil? Is that what this is about? No, no, that's, it's a different veil than that veil. Ah, it's V-E-I-L, okay. not V A L E. Oh, darn. Okay. But, but now Ca- Commander veil, who is first officer of the Titan, that's in the, trek verse i mean the lit verse of star trek so that doesn't mean she's going to be in this novel or will she hmm you'll have to read it and find out hmm i'm really curious about that myself i i hope to find that out soon you will you will find out soon enough but anyway dan when people want to talk about star trek books novels comics series movies or anything star trek where can people find you Well, I'm always available to talk all things Star Trek on the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. So just search for that. Search for Positively Trek on Facebook. I'm always there. 
uh, way more than I ever was in the Babel conference. I remember when we were on literary treks and we always pimped the Babel conference. I never really went in there. I, I, I lurked a bit, but I didn't comment. Positively Trek discussion group. I feel like I'm in there all the time talking with people and it's so much fun. I really want you to join. I'm also on Twitter at Kurtrats. You can always tweet to me there. I'll respond back to you as well. And my Star Trek novel review website, treklet.com. I'm really hoping to do a lot of work to update that in the new year here. So uh, hold me to it. If you see that it's going by and it's not being updated, tweet to me. Let me know how disappointed in me you are because I want to hear it. I need that motivation. So thank you for that. There you go. And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. Of course, Positively Trek is on Twitter also and on Instagram. You can find us there. Hey, you can always send us an email too at PositivelyTrek at gmail.com. And yeah, that Facebook group that we have, I'm going to tell you, um, you know, I'm also a member of the Babel Conference and lately there isn't a whole lot of talk about star trek in there there's a lot more actually happening in our group on facebook right now so live long and prosper and stay positive save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.